Tonight we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. Last week we looked at at chapter 4 verses 7 through 12. And this is really the second part of that whole section. Uh, We just didn't have time to deal with all of it last week. But but this passage uh, and what we talked a lot about last week was that it deals with a a Christ-like love that should be evident in the lives of those who truly know God, because as he said last week, and we discovered it was a very, very profound statement that, that is that God is love. And, and that means that it, that it's, it's, it's part of his nature. It's not just something he does. It's part of who he is. And, and we talked about that last week. You can go back. I'm not going to go over those things again. And then actually tonight in, in this passage, he's going to repeat that uh, again. We'll see it and read it in just a few moments. But you know, in, in light of, of Christ's unparalleled example of selfless love and the high calling that we have to be extensions of God's perfect love in the world, it would be perfectly natural for us as human beings to just sort of throw our hands in the air and say, what? <laughs> I surrender. Nobody, nobody can live up to that kind of love but, but Jesus alone. And if you in that place where you throw up and say, I give up, well, you know, that's perfect because that's exactly where you need to be. That attitude of surrender is where John leads us in the following verses. But let's pick it up in verse 13. We'll read 13 through 16. Then we'll go on and read the rest of it in just a moment. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Um, uh, by the way, I'm not going to spend time on this, but you can see here this, this passage of Scripture is, uh, is tremendously Trinitarian uh, because it talks about the Holy Spirit in, the very, in, in verse 13 and it talks about the Son, talks about the Father, talks about all three of them in, 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 in our lives. Um, <clears throat> on our own, we are completely unable to manifest the kind of love that, that this passage talks about. But the good news is God hasn't lo- left us on our own. You know, if you're in that place where you're like, I just give up, I can't do this, I can't live love like this, that's a good place to be because then you stop trying to do it on your own and you realize what he tells us here that we're not alone in this. When, when we gave our lives to Christ, God gave us the third person of the Trinity to indwell us and to empower us. You know, we in the assemblies of God, we believe that there is another work of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. But every, every person who is saved has the Spirit of God in them. Um, if you ever want to think about the difference between the baptism and the Holy Spirit and being in the filling of the spirit when we get saved, you can picture it this way: that when uh, when you get saved, you're like a glass and the pitcher of water. You 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 pour the water in the glass. You have the spirit inside of you. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is more like if you take that glass then and then drop it in the pitcher, where it's not only in you but you are in Him. It's a it's a different uh, concept there. But when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our lives. And, 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 and after Jesus' resurrection, believers could live in Him. And, and because of His Spirit, uh, He could uh, live in, in, in the believers. And so when people become Christians, they do receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how, and, and He's saying to us here, that's one of the ways that we know that we're, we belong to God. How can I know if that God is at work in my life? Well, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, think about that. What does that mean? Uh, does the Holy Spirit convict me of sin? You know, I heard a, the old old preacher. He's going to be with the Lord now. His name was Mickey Bonner. He used to say, one of the ways you know you're saved is you can't get away with a thing. The Holy Spirit, just when you do something that is that is contrary to God's will, when you sin, when you rebel, the Holy Spirit just doesn't let it go. And he's constantly convicting you and sometimes going to the point of actually exposing the sin in your life. And, and so if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, that's a very good sign. If you can sin without caring, that's a dangerous place to be. 
Um, but uh, so does the Holy Spirit convict me of sin? Is the Holy Spirit teaching me? Are you, are you, when you get into the Word, are you learning? Is He showing you uh, new things and helping you to apply it to your life? Do I sense the leading of the Spirit in my life? Do I see any evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is growing in my life? You know, and that's a huge one because, uh, uh, you know, we, we in the Pentecostal world, we sometimes put such an emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit but, but the, I want you to understand this. The gifts of the Spirit <clears throat> have absolutely zero to do with spiritual maturity. A brand new baby Christian can be used by the Holy Spirit in any of the gifts of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is about growing into a more Christ-like life through the working of the Spirit in our lives. And so I think we should focus a lot more on the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and make that a priority. And so... So then if I want to know if, if the Holy Spirit's at work, if God's at work in my life through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, I can look at myself, I can look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, okay, not have I arrived at any of those things because none of us, none of us have arrived there, right? But I can look at it and say, have I grown in these areas? And am I still growing in these areas? You know, and if you're like me, you'll look at it and it's like some of them I'm like, and I've made, I feel like the Lord's really brought me along a, a long way in this one. And then I get to patience <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Lord, <laughs> we got to work on this. Give me patience and give it to me now. Come on. You know, that's, that's the way it is. But, and then uh, do I see signs of power in my life as I witness? Does, does he, you know, and even in there, you can see the leading of the spirit when you're sharing your faith with somebody. Does he bring things to your mind? You can see the presence and that power and the activity, the spirit in our life. And that's a sign that we do belong to God. Uh, they're, they're proof that we really belong to the Father. The, the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and he also opens our hearts and empowers our wills to accept it. But, but, but the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. The, the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who, who, who unites us to the life of God because, you know, he's already talked about the life of God and now he's talking about, uh, he's talking about light and now he's talking about the love of God. Well, that spirit enables us to, to confess the Lord Jesus as a son of God on a continual basis. But, but here's the thing, the spirit, this is what he's talking about here. The same spirit who unites us to the life of God also unites us to the love of God so that we are not only recipients of his love, but because we are connected to him, we are conduits, conduits of his love. And that's, and that's a significant thing. That's where, you know, uh, another passage in the New Testament, I didn't put this in my notes, but it says that the love of God, that God has, has shed his love abroad in our hearts. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit we're, uh, connecting us to the love of, of God and because we're connected to it, then it flows out of us. And remember, we used the illustration last week that it, with a hose, if you hook up to a hose to a water source, then water is what's going to flow through it, not something else. You can't hook it up to a water source and then have, you know, iced tea flowing out the other end. That'd be, that'd be kind of nice. I want that hose, uh, but, but it's not going to happen. You know, you, you, if you hook up a wire to a source of energy, you're going to have that energy, that electrical impulse traveling through the wire, not something else. And in the same way, if we're connected to God, since he is love, what will flow through us is going to be love. You could also say it's the same way uh, because we, we talked about the only other, you know, there are not, not a lot of, uh, of those attributes that say that God is something like he, he doesn't, the Bible doesn't say God is grace or God is mercy, but it does say God is love. Another one like that is where he says God is holy. And so it defines his character, his nature, who he is. That means, again, you can use the same logic. One of the reasons it's important for us to be growing in holiness is because that's an indicator that I am connected to a God who is holy. Therefore, his holiness will begin to flow through me and begin to change the way I think, the way I uh, talk, the way I do things. It will change uh, my life. So um, in short, we're not left on our own to live up to the love of God in our own strength. Thank the Lord for that. Thank God that I don't have to do all of this in my own strength because I'm just not going to be able to do it. I'm just not going to, it's not going to happen. 
It would be utterly impossible to do that. We, we can't ever forget that in our flesh, that is our, you know, when we use flesh, we're not talking about, you know, the literal flesh and blood. We're talking about our fallen condition with its sinful tendencies because we all have that, right? We all have our tendency towards sin. I always think of it like this, that when you're walking with Christ, it's, it's a little bit like going up the down escalator. That, 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 it's, that there's always something that if you are not diligent, it's always your, your, your sinful nature in you is always trying to pull you back. But, and so that's why you can't coast in your walk with the Lord. That's why you're always, you always are, have to be constantly moving forward because through the, with the help of the Spirit, you'll keep moving forward. But if you stop and you think, I'm just going to relax, I'm not going to do anything, I'm good enough, you're probably already in the process of moving backwards without even realizing it. Um, but uh, so we're not on our own. We're, we can't produce that kind of agape love that God manifests. However, uh, we, we have to remember that while I can't do it, this love is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, what is the very first uh, item listed in the fruit of the Spirit? Anybody remember? For the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the very first one. Love, joy, peace, it goes on. So that means that, uh, that if the Holy Spirit is living inside of me, that He is going to be developing that fruit. An interesting thing about fruit in, our, in, in, in anything is that fruit is something, it doesn't just appear full grown on the vine, does it? You know, Julie's really excited. She's got some tomato plants going and there's some tomatoes growing on there. I'm excited because I love a homegrown tomato. Uh, but you know what? We didn't wake up the other day and all of a sudden it was like, hey, look, there's a full grown red ripe tomato on there. It's a process of growth and maturity. And it's the same in our lives. This is, by the way, it's another reason to be encouraged if you look at your life and say, man, I just don't measure up to Jesus. Well, frankly, none of us do. But it's a process that the Holy Spirit is working on in us to develop that fruit. And you're, you, you may not be fully ripe. You know, in other words, you may not be fully like Christ in any of them. But I can tell you this, if you're walking with Jesus and you're letting him do what he wants and you're moving up that down escalator, if you keep moving forward with the help of the Spirit, then I can guarantee you, that that fruit has developed, developed more in your life now than what it used to be. If you take, if you take uh, stock, if you, if you notice that, and you'll begin to be encouraged if you, can, if you will just learn to, uh, to be excited about the progress. You know, we, we, have, we walk sometimes in false guilt because we haven't arrived, because they're not perfect. And that's false guilt because even God doesn't expect that. He knows we're not going to be perfect instantly. But I can be encouraged to keep going if I will take stock of what God has, do has done and what he is doing in my life and realize, man, I have not arrived, but I certainly am not where I used to be. I have grown. I have matured. And, 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 and to not be satisfied with where you are, but continually moving forward. Now, another way believers can trust in this relationship that, with God is that the, it, we we're told that the message came from those who had seen with their own eyes that the Father sent His Son to, to be the Savior of the world. Now, he says, we, again, there he's referring to the apostles and to other eyewitnesses of Christ's life while He walked the face of this earth. They were appointed by Christ to testify to others uh, about their firsthand eyewitness experiences. Therefore, According to this verse, we have two proofs of God's love for us. One is the indwelling presence of God's Spirit, and we've talked a little bit about how we can see that His Spirit is there in us. And then the second proof that we have is the eyewitness testimony of, of those apostles and those who knew Jesus while they lived on, the, on this earth. <coughs> Excuse me. And you say, well, I don't, I've never heard that. Well, you have read it. That is what the Word of God is. When you read the New Testament, you're reading the firsthand eyewitness accounts of those who saw Jesus and who knew him and experienced everything that he did. He says that all who acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. Now, when people acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God, what, they're, what, does, that, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you just casually say, oh, okay, oh, whatever, he's the son of God. 
what he's talking about there is, is they're declaring their belief that Jesus is God's one and only son who came to earth as a human being. Remember, one of the things that John was com combating by writing this was some of the Gnostic teaching that said, well, God didn't really come. He was a spirit, but he just looked like he was a real human and he's making it clear. So, so we know that that's part of it is, is uh, declaring our belief that he was truly God's one and only son there, and, and that there's no other, other uh, no, no creation that's like him and that he did come to earth as a human being, that he did actually die on a cross, that he actually did rise again and that then he, and then he returned to heaven and he sits by the at the right hand of the father so that's acknowledging that Jesus is the son of god all of that is included in that when you take it in the context of the entire book and and they also believe that not only did Jesus do these things but that his death on the cross and his resurrection won forgiveness for my sin it it purchased that forgiveness believers know that God loves them and they rely on that fact. John says that we know and we rely on, or, we, or another way to say rely on would be we trust God's love. God's love is to be known and it is to be trusted. As one commentator said, knowing that truth calls us to trust in it. If, 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 if God's love is truly known, then the believer will be led to rely fully upon God's love since, think about this, since his love is the foundation upon which all Christian hope is built. Uh, the reason I have hope is because of God's love. You say, well, you know, but what about his holiness and, you know, sacrifice? Yeah, okay, but why did he sacrifice? Well, it was because our sin separated us from God. Our sin separated us from God because of his holiness and our sinfulness. Now, without the love of God, he could just let that be. If he wasn't love, he could have ignored that and say, fine, whatever. They've made their choice. Let them lie in their bed. They're going to hell, all of them. And he would have been absolutely right and absolutely justified to do so. But instead, he had another part of him that not only is he holy, he is also love. And it's his love that caused him to say, okay, they have really got themselves in a fix. They have sinned and separated themselves from me. They cannot enter my presence because I am, I am perfect. I'm holy. I can't, I can't abide that. I can't allow that. It can't survive. In fact, that's the truth. The sin cannot survive. Evil cannot survive in his presence. So he said, something must be done in order to, to heal them of this sickness of sin, this death of sin. But the problem is there's nothing they can do about it. So he said, because I love them so much, I'll send my son and he'll, be, he'll take their place. He'll pay the penalty on the cross. That's John 3.16. For God what? So loved. In other words, for God loved the world so much that he gave his own one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should, should not perish should not die should not go to hell but what have eternal life so so all of our hope is based on the fact that god loves us that's what motivates god motivated god to do what he did and it, it's the only cause for confidence on the, on the day of judgment, and it's the source of our eternal life. I, I can be confident on the day of judgment before God because of His love for me. Not because I did anything, not because I'm good enough, but because I know He loved me so much that He paid the penalty for my sin and He has adopted me into His family. He's declared me not guilty even though I was guilty. Now He's he has declared me God not guilty because his son paid the penalty for my sin. Therefore, because of that kind of love, I can stand before him in confidence. Uh, love, that love is, the, is evidence. Love in our life is the evidence of an actual relational indwelling between God and his people. It, it, it's the sure confirmation that that relationship really does exist with God. Our faith is based on the knowledge of God's love. That's why we have hope. Without his love, no hope. 
he, he proves his love for us. And he does it in so many ways, ways that we don't even begin to think about. You know, first of all, we know he proves his love by, he proved his love by sending his son. We know that, but every day he proves his love for us. He, I mean, and we don't even think about it. The, the fact is, with, with, if God were to take his hand off of your life, everything would fly apart. Your heart would not beat another beat. Your lungs would not breathe another breath. You would never think another thought. But because of what, but because of God having, holding things together, you can read that in the New Testament. Because of that, uh, and why does he do that? It's because he loves us. Our, our knowledge of God's love help us to, helps us to place our faith in him and to rely on his love for our ultimate salvation. If I know he really loves me, then I know I can trust him. And John says, and this is really an echo of what he said, some of the things we talked about last week. He says, to live in God is to live in love. Uh, remember, he, he said before and, and, and said it again, God is love. So if I'm alive in God, then I'm also alive in his love because that is who he is. God's very nature and personality resonate love. Everything God has done and will ever do overflows with love. And because God is love, if we live in God, then we must also live in love. The two cannot be separated. We spent more time last week talking about that because, uh, as we said earlier, if we're connected to him, that's what will flow from him through us. And, and according to John, there's simply no way to avoid the conclusion that without love, we're not related to God. If we have no love, we're not God's children. In the, in the absence of love, that means we have not been born of him. We do not know him and we do not live in him. Love is an essential ingredient in the DNA of God's children. If we are his children and we have been born of him, and he is love, then love must be part of our DNA. Not physically, but spiritual DNA. Uh, without love, we can no more be God's children. I'm going to give you a silly example. Without love, we can be no more be God's children than fettuccine Alfredo can be, uh, can be fettuccine Alfredo without Alfredo sauce. Right? I love fettuccine Alfredo. Now, let me tell you. But, but if you give me a fettuccine, if you put a plate before me of fettuccine uh, noodles and you say, here's your fettuccine Alfredo, but there's no Alfredo sauce, I'm going to say, uh, sorry, I mean, thank you, but that's not fettuccine Alfredo. That's just fettuccine. That's just a bowl of noodles. So to, to call something fettuccine Alfredo without Alfredo sauce is a complete oxymoron. And to call somebody God's children without love is just as foolish. It cannot exist. You cannot have a fettuccine Alfredo without Alfredo sauce. You cannot be God's children without love. It's impossible. And it's one thing to know and to believe in God's love. We can know about it. We can believe in it. But what he's saying here is that it's quite another thing to actually appropriate God's love into my life so that I, as a child of God, abide in love. I live in that love. I, grow, I draw my life from that love. So let's keep reading. Verse 17. <clears throat> in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. Now, when it says made complete among us, it doesn't mean that God's love is somehow incomplete. What he was talking about is it's more of a maturity. It's a completeness that comes that God's love grows in us and matures in us when we act in love toward other people. Uh, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So, so John sort of shifts gears here a little bit. He changes directions just a little bit at this point, And he wants to bring into the discussion both the subject of judgment and the subject of fear. So he ties it all together with love. Now, now there's that verse in there. There is no fear. Excuse me. Perfect love drives out fear. 
And we, I think we, we misuse that a lot of times because specifically what he's talking about here, as he says, he says, because fear has to do with punishment. So when we say perfect love drives out fear, what we're talking about is because of his love for us, I no longer fear the judgment of God. So that, that perfect love and that mature love in me, it causes me to, 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 to live and, then, and to no longer fear the judgment of God. Uh, uh, the, loving others out of gratitude for how we have been loved in Christ has consequences not only for the present, but also for the future. And the argument that John has built up to this point is very powerful. It runs something like this. He's loving others, possessing the spirit, confessing the son, and, and mutually abiding in God and, and in God's love. Uh, bring, that All of that bring, brings God's love to its fullness and intended goal in our lives. It's, it's perfect purpose in our lives. Um, see, love has an intended goal has a purpose. And so that's what it means. It's perfected or completed. It means that it's actually accomplishing the purpose that God has in our lives. And, and abiding in the love of God, he said, it tells us, gives us confidence or boldness for the judgment day. And, and listen, we don't like to talk. Anybody, nobody likes to talk about judgment day. You know, that's not something you sit around and say, hey, what do you want to talk about? Well, let's talk about the day of judgment. You know, nobody's like sitting around dinner saying, this is a great topic. But, but you know what? It's something that every person, person should, give, uh, uh, should consider with healthy seriousness. Because it is real. And it is coming. Now, as a follower of Christ, I'm not going to face judgment for my sin any longer. But I am going to face judgment in the sense that uh, my actions will be tried to, to reveal my motives. So that will eventually be revealed. So that's a whole different thing altogether. But I'm not facing judgment for my sin at that point in time. It's, it's going to show, okay, you know, what did you do truly do for the glory of God and what did you do for your own little glory and that sort of thing. But, but that's a whole different thing altogether. But, but judgment is real and it is coming. In fact, you know what? When you talk about judgment, you talk about judgment of sin, standing before the judgment bar of God. No one spoke more often or more vividly of judgment than Jesus. People want to say, oh, you, Jesus, he's all about love. But they, they forget, you know, the world wants to say, you should be like Jesus. You should, he's, he's all about love. And that's why we should just love everybody. Well, we should love everybody. But the problem is loving everybody doesn't mean that we give sanction to everybody's sins. And that's what the world wants us to, to do. Uh, and, and that's how they define it. But Jesus, if you want to talk about reality, Jesus spoke, as I said, more often and more vividly of judgment than anybody else. The, the word hell or the Greek word is it's Gehenna. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. Did you know that all but one of those occurrences comes from the mouth of Jesus? The only other time it's mentioned is when James mentions it. The, 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 in fact, the very purpose of Jesus' coming was to help us be prepared for that day. It's so that I'll be ready to face God, that I'll be able to stand before him with confidence and boldness without fear, instead of standing there trembling, knowing what's coming because, I, because I'm standing there knowing my sin is going to be judged and knowing that the ultimate destination for those who, who have not received what Christ has done on the cross, that the ultimate destination is hell. So, so, so John tells us, though, that we can not only not be, be not only ready, but before the judgment day, we can be confident. Not arrogant, but confident. Why? And he, he says a very interesting phrase. He said, because on that day in this world, we are like him. It's a very unusual statement. Now, what, what does John mean by that? Um, I, I think the answer is something like this. Because we are in Christ, abiding in him and he abiding in us, we stand in relation to God in the world in the same way that Christ does. John MacArthur said it like this. This stunning statement, he's talking about this passage, this stunning statement means 
the Father treats the saints the same way He does His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's accurate, that's biblical, because we're told that He that we are, we are given the righteousness of, of, of Christ. He takes our sin away and gives us the righteousness of Christ. That's how God sees us. Uh, even though I'm not, I haven't lived up to that righteousness, He still sees me because that's what He gave me. He goes on and says, Someday believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as their Lord and Savior does. When they reach that final accounting, they will see the fulfillment of 1 John 3, 2. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about, about that, that we are like Him, therefore that gives us confidence because of what God has done in our lives because of the work of Jesus. And so a mature or a complete love grows as each believer's relationship with God uh, who, who is love grows. So as my relationship with God, since He is love, as that relationship grows, it only makes sense then that my love is going to grow. And so if I'm maturing in Christ, I'm going to be learning how to love more and more fully and more and more completely, more and more sacrificially. In fact, I still maintain that when we talk about becoming Christ-like, I think it really boils down to that the more Christ-like I become, the more selfless I become. I think it boils down to that in a lot of ways. Uh, and so, so uh, we have this confidence. With God living in us through Christ, we have no reason to fear the day of judgment because we know because of His love, because we know His love, because we've experienced His love, because we have the Spirit inside of us, because we can, we've, we've acknowledged and confessed Jesus and that He is the Son of God who lived on this earth. He died, He rose again, that He paid the penalty for our sins. Because of all that, we know we have been saved from, from punishment. Therefore, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And since I know I'm not going to be punished because Christ took my punishment, now I have confidence. John, John explains how we can banish such fear from our, our lives. If, if you want to get rid of fear, first of all, we've got to come, come to terms with how much God loves us. Some of us struggle with this greatly because we walk in false guilt, because we, we shame ourselves. Sometimes it's because we... We want attention from other people, and so we, sit, we talk about how bad we are so that other people will say, oh, no, you're a good person. But, but, but we have to come to grips with the reality of how much God loves us, that it's real, that He has taken our punishment, that our sins are forgiven. And, and it's in understanding this truth that we are completely and totally accepted in Christ that we find a great sense of fr freedom. Second of all, so we, we need to spend time thinking about how much God loves us every day. Think about His love for you. But second, according to what John is saying, we have to love others. Because I obviously don't know His love if His love isn't flowing through me. If we spend our lives caring for others and putting their needs first, then the judgment seat of Christ will come and it will be a time for gaining, not losing rewards. And we will hear our master say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because I've been letting his love change me. When God's love has reached its intended goal and has accomplished its perfect work, that's when fear before God is driven out and dread of punishment is vanquished. In contrast, those who do live in fear of future punishment give evidence that something is wrong, something's off inside, whether it's your understanding of God's love or your, your salvation or your understanding of salvation, but, but it gives, tells us that God's perfecting work of love has not done its work in, in your life. So out of gospel gratitude, that's why we do these things, because we're grateful for what He's done. Out of gospel gratitude for who you are in Christ, love others as He loved you. And then the threat of punishment will disappear. The fear of punishment will evaporate. Love never fears judgment or punishment. It's bold. It's confident. To, to drive fear from your life, spend time daily meditating on the truth that you are loved unconditionally, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than He already does, and there's nothing you can do 
to make him love you any more than he already does. You, you can't do it. And then once you, once you understand that, go and love other people, not out of duty, but out of joy because you've discovered this love. So, so why do we love? Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Some versions add a word in there. They say we love him because he first loved us. That's really not accurate because the word him is not present in the earliest manuscripts. Instead, it just simply reads, as, as I read it there, we love because he first loved us. Um, so it's not just that we love him. It's that we love, period. We love him. We love others because he first loved us. But believers love, whether for God or for others, is based on God's love for them. And God's love is the source, the, the initiator. God took the initiative, not us. Our love finds its origin in God's love. Pe people cannot love this way on their own. It happens because he first loved them. And we know God's love is far above all human love. He, he loves us and the love that now abides in us and has been perfected in us overflows in loving words and actions towards others. Um, and, 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 and I mean, he initiated. We didn't beg him to come. We didn't say, oh, Lord, we're in bad shape. You, could you send a savior? We didn't even know we needed him. We didn't know how far from him. We were dead to him. We were enemies of his. And yet he loved us in spite of that. Then verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For, for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he who has given us this command, whoever loves God, and excuse me, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the Father's prior love for us is, is our source, and it's also the cause of our love for others. If I am not loving others as I ought, then that means I do not know God, and I don't know God's love as I should. That, in essence, is John's argument in verse 20. A, a, a person's boast of love for God can be tested. If somebody says, oh, I love God so much. I love Him so much. It's easy to say those words, isn't it? But a, a boast of love for God can be tested. How? By that person's love for others. That's the test. If that person rejects their brothers or sisters or refuses to fellowship with the people, if they say, I hate the church, if, if, if they refuse to love people around them, then, then that person's love for God is open to question. In fact, John says that such people are liars. Believers know that God loves them and that they no longer fear him, but they are, they are still responsible to love other people, particularly other believers. John, John explains very, very logically here that those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Now, his logic is flawless. It's, it's what we call a lesser to greater analogy. The gist is, that if you do not have the ability to love the brother that you can see, then it is impossible for you to love the God who you have not seen. If you, if you do not manage to love his creatures, then you cannot love the creator. If you don't have the capacity to love his children, then you cannot have the capacity to love the father. It's what John R. Stott said it rightly when he said this. He said, it is obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. And that's true. It's a lot easier to love somebody you can touch, you can feel, you can hug, you can serve, you can do something for them, whatever, than it is in the invisible God. But he says, and if we fail in the easier task, it is absurd to claim success in the harder. So if I fail in the easier task of loving the person, the brother or sister that I can see, then it's absolutely absurd for me to claim success in loving God. It's easy to claim to love God, isn't it? It's especially easy to claim to love God when that love doesn't cost me anything more than just weekly attendance at a religious service. That's all it costs me. It's easy to say that. But the real test of a person's love for God is how that person treats the people right in front of him or her. 
family members, fellow believers. Let's go beyond that. The server at McDonald's, the waiter or the waitress at the restaurant, the person in the grocery store, the checkout person there, the person who's rude in traffic, whatever. The real test of, of a person's love for God is how that person treats the people that God has put in their life. People cannot truly love God while neglecting to love those who are created in His image. That's what we forget. Every person I see has been made in the image of the one I claim to love. So if I if I hate that person, if I don't love that person, and I say I love him, I'm neglecting the fact that that person is in the image of the one I say I love. I heard somebody say it one time like this. They said, uh, you know, I have to remind myself every, every time I see somebody, every time I'm dealing with somebody, I have to remind myself, this is one of God's favorites. Every time I look at somebody, I have to remind myself, this person is one of God's favorites. God loved this person so much that his son died for them. I have to, I have to love people. Not, not only is it natural for believers to love God's children if they are connected with the love of God, but we also know it's God's command, which we, I'm going to read uh, three verses here, three passages of Scripture that show us where we're commanded to love. But, but I also want to just point out the fact that anytime we're commanded to do something, that means it's something that we can do. You know, if we, and I say that because if we think love is nothing more than emo, an emotion, the reality is you, you cannot control emotion, emotions. You can control what you do with them. You can control your actions in response to emotions. But you know what? If somebody does something, you can't stop yourself from having anger. You can stop yourself from doing anything with the anger and speaking out or, or lashing out. But anger, the emotion, you can't make it just suddenly not appear, right? You know, so emotions are not something that's in our control. That's just something that's sort of hardwired in us. What we do with our emotions is how we deal with it. So if love is nothing more than emotion, how in the world could God possibly say, now I command you, love one another? Because you can't make an emotion appear. You can make yourself, uh, you know, like some actors and actresses do, you can make yourself look like you have that emotion. You can pretend like you have that emotion, but, but I, I can't make myself have an emotion. I can, I can act like I'm angry, but if I'm not angry, I'm not angry. I can't make anger show up. And so what, all that to say that if he commands us to do something, that means that it's a lot more than just an emotion. It is something that we can take action on. That's where it leads us, you know, where we've, you've heard it. And I know we're not going to go into all this, but we, we've learned that love is an action. Love is a verb. Love is something we do. And so it, it, if we understand that, then it makes it where we can apply these. But let me read these verses to you. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Mark 12, 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. And then John himself, the same one who wrote 1 John, he wrote this and he's quoting Jesus. Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. You know that verse there? I always look and read that and I say, you know, it'd been a whole lot easier if Jesus had just stopped after he said, love one another, because then I could interpret that any way I wanted to. But then he said, as I have loved you, that's how you got to love one another. So, so John has pointed out up to this point in time in his letter, he's pointed out three different lies, excuse me, two different lies. He's pointing out a third one now to claim to know and love God while disobeying God's commands is a lie. To claim to know and love God while denying the deity of God's son is a lie. And now the third lie is to claim to know and love God without loving others is a lie. 
God is love, so the one who claims to love God, who, who is love, cannot at the same time hate. According to John, a person can only be a lover or a hater, but they cannot be both. The, the claim, therefore, to love while also hating must be false. Now, I want to say this, and I'm going to bring this in. John doesn't specifically address this, but it's something I felt like it's something I needed to go to because it's very closely related to this, because this brings up, or may bring up, another issue that people have to deal with in their lives, and that is the issue of forgiveness. I, have, I can't even tell you how many people I have dealt with over the years in, in counseling sessions who, who I know they love God, but they have struggled deeply with forgiveness. Somebody has done something horrible to them or they, somebody's done something horrible to somebody they love. And I, I mean, I've, I've sat in the room with them where, they, where we talked about these things and they say, I hate them. I can't stand to be in the same room with them. I can't forgive them. Well, honestly, you know, sometimes we need to substitute the word won't instead of the word can't. And that really gives us the reality of where we are in, in reality. Uh, and it would be true in the sense I, to say I can't forgive them if I'm trying to do it on my own. But with God's help, I know I can, which that changes it to say I won't forgive them. Um, John is teaching us uh, that, that we have to deal with, with that if we're truly connected to the love, to the God who is love. Think, think of it like this. If we are connected to God through Christ and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and if he is love, as John said here, then as we've said, we made it clear that then his love will flow through our lives as a result. We're all on the same page there. But I want you to look at his love. What did he do for us in response to his love for us? Well, the ultimate expression of that is that he sent his son as an atoning, atoning sacrifice for our sins. He, he took it upon himself to pay the penalty for our sins. He took it upon himself to become a, a, a lowly servant here on this earth. He chose to forgive us even though our sins against him were massive. Uh, and, and even as we know, even while he was hanging out on the cross, Jesus said what? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And, and, and for anybody to say especially if it's somebody who says, I know and love, I love God, to say I can't forgive because it was, it's too much, it's too big, what you're really saying is that person's sin against you is even bigger than, than humanity's sin against Christ when they crucified him on the cross. Does, do you see that? If he could be hanging on the cross and pray that, then if I have his love in my heart, I can say it too. If his love flows through us, then that love will be a forgiving love. Now, I'm here to tell you, I'm not here to say that it's easy. Oh, it's a piece of cake. You can forgive, no problem. It's not gonna be easy. And I'm here to tell you, it does not come naturally. It's a, it's a choice that we make to cancel the debt that we feel that person owes us. Because that's really the idea of forgiveness comes from the, from the sense of a financial world that if, if, a, if you owe the bank something and, they, and you, for whatever reasons, they, you know, they, they cancel the debt, what they have done is they have forgiven the debt. They're saying you don't owe us anything anymore. Whether it's a bank, maybe it's not likely to be a bank, but maybe it's a friend who you borrowed money from and they say, no, you don't owe me anything. That's a gift now. All right. So to forgive someone, if I have unforgiveness, then what in essence it is, is that I believe they owe me something, an apology. They owe me, you know, got to make it right. If, if it's because of a financial thing, they owe me this money. They owe me this. They owe me that. Whatever it is. To forgive is a choice that we make to say, I cancel the debt. That person doesn't owe me anything anymore. I'm not looking to them for anything because I'm choosing to forgive. And we do that because we have already experienced the forgiveness of a debt that we could never repay. That's the story in Matthew 18. I'm not going to take time to read it, but you know the story of the servant who went to the master who owed a great debt 
And he begged and pleaded, oh, please forgive me. I promise you I'll pay back everything I owe. I promise you I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Please forgive me. And, and, the, and the master had compassion and pity on him and he forgave the debt. Then that man went out. And what did he do? He grabbed another servant by the throat. Now he owed this, this master uh, a debt that he could never repay in his entire lifetime. If he gave him everything he owned for the rest of his life, he could never pay it back. And the master forgave it. Then he goes out, grabs a guy by the throat and says, Hey, wait a minute. You owe me a hundred bucks. Where's my money? And the guy said the very same words. If you read the passage, he said the exact same words. And, and he said, please forgive me. I'll pay back everything I owe. Just give me some time. And he would not forgive him. He threw him into debtor's prison, which that's a place where they would go. Then they'd have to go out and work uh, to earn money. And all that money that would earn would go back to pay the, toward, pay the debt off, that sort of thing. But, but when the master heard, the servants saw this and they were troubled. So they went and told the master. When the master heard, what did he do? He called that original servant, that first servant, and he said, Hey, what are you, what are you thinking? Did you, did you forget how much I forgave you? I mean, you, you were underneath a, a debt that you could never repay. And I forgave that debt. I canceled that debt. And then you're going to turn around after I've given you that great bounty of freedom. And then, and you're going to, you're going to prosecute somebody for a debt for a piddly amount. And he, the Bible says he reinstated the debt and threw him into prison. Then the scary part is right at the end, it says, Jesus says, and that's how the Father in heaven is going to treat you if you don't forgive others from your heart. So, <laughs> in response to God's forgiveness of our sins, we let our, his love flow through us and we choose to forgive those who sin against us. We cancel the debt. And as I said, it's vital because Jesus said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive their sins. See, this ties in with what John has been teaching us here about God's love. Because God's forgiveness flows from his love. And if we are connected with his love, his love will flow from us, through us. Therefore, if we're connected to his love, as that love flows through our lives, forgiveness will also flow through us. So, so this is not Jesus just arbitrarily saying, well, if you do this, then it's going to make the father angry. And so he won't forgive your dad. He's saying, no, no, no. If you choose not to forgive, it proves that you have never understood his forgiveness. You've never experienced his forgiveness. You're not in touch with his love because if you were, you would turn around and forgive as well. It's really the same thing. It's the same principle that John is talking about that, 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 that we, you know, that if we're, if we are in him and he is love and that love forgives, then I'm going to let that love flow and I'm going to choose to forgive. Now, as I said, it's not easy. And sometimes it's, I'm, uh, many times it's humanly impossible. But I'm also here to tell you that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you can make that choice. Now, now I will say this. Sometimes people have, have prayed that prayer and they say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I forgive so and so. And the next time they see him, it all just starts coming back up again. Well, you know what? At that point in time, you know what you have to do? You have to stop. You have to take those thoughts captive to Christ. And you have to say, no, Father, in the name of Jesus, I forgive so-and-so. I forgive them. And then what you have to do, you have to take action. You got to go do something. I remember there was a, uh, a time in my ministry, I had somebody in the church. They didn't like whatever I was doing and the changes we were making. And, and so... They went to one of the board members and started off the conversation with people all around them, you know, in the foyer of the church, naturally. You know, they don't do it in a private conversation. They, but they go to this person and they say, they say, you brought him here. And they, they said, and then first of all, the board members are like, wait a minute, you know, we all voted on him. And so, but then she said, she said, I don't even know if he's saved. Well, I heard that. That really hurt, you know. But what was funny is that she didn't leave the church. So I don't know why you stay in a church if you really don't think the pastor's saved. But, but, uh, but, but I'll, all that to say that, you know, I had to make a choice to say, okay, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I forgive her. I forgive her. But then 
you know, I'd be in the front of the sanctuary, I'd see her walk in the back, and everything in my flesh wanted to go the other way. I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want, Lord, I'll forgive her, but I don't want to talk to her. I don't want anything to do with her, but I forgive her. Well, that's not really forgiveness. So the Holy Spirit made me. I'm telling you, he made me. He said, okay, listen, we're not going to play this game. He said, every time you see her, I want you to go give her a hug. And I started doing that. She was so, you could tell it was so, she was so uncomfortable. But every time I saw her, I'd go up and give her a hug and just say, I love you. I love you. It, it, it sort of got to be fun. I don't know if it, it may have, it may have not have been good, but it got to the point where I was like, oh boy, I get to make her uncomfortable again. Let's go do it. But listen, if I know God's love, his love will flow through me. And that love includes that forgiveness. And I have to remember, see, a lot of times people say, well, if I forgive, they're just going to get away with it. Well, first of all, it's not up to you to punish. It's not up to you to judge. It's not up to you to give revenge. That belongs to God. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if I get into the vengeance business, I'm getting into the realm that belongs to God. In other words, he's saying, listen, if they have sinned and you forgive, if they never repent, they're not getting away with a thing. Because ultimately, when I sin against you, what I'm really doing is I'm sinning against God. That's where my sin really is. And if somebody sins against me, their sin is not really against me. Ultimately, it's against God. And therefore, it's not my place to get in there and say, okay, God, I got this one. God says, no, no, no. You forgive. You let my love flow through you. And if they choose not to repent, I'll deal with it. Leave them to me. Leave them to me. And if they do repent... Just know that I am absolutely justified in forgiving them. That's, that's what he's saying to us. So we have to learn to let things go, to forgive when others have sinned against us, to cancel any debt we believe they owe to us. And then we have to, this is the harder part for some of us, we have to learn to serve those whom we might consider enemies in the flesh. Well, I'm going to close with this. You know, couples often debate about who loved whom first. You know, they say, oh, I, I said I love you first. No, I said it first. But John makes it clear that when it comes to a person's relationship with God, there's absolutely no question who made the first move. God loved first. He initiated. Not in response to our overtures, as I said earlier, not because we were lovable, not because we were deserving. But in fact, the opposite is true. The Apostle Paul said, but God demonstrates his own love in, for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. This is the mystery of mercy. This is the miracle of grace. God chose to love a race of rebels and prodigals. It is this kind of love that believers are called to share with the world. I read a quote today by a man named D. Edmund Hebert, and he wisely observed, since, God is, since God's love is no longer visible in the presence of the incarnate Christ here on earth, in other words, Jesus is not walking the face of the earth any longer, so his love can't be seen in him. He said, God is manifesting his love as it is now displayed in his people. Imagine the impact that Christians could have by letting God fill us with his unconditional redemptive love. A love that actually per pursues evildoers and enemies until they stop running and then blesses them. Jesus came to die for this world. And we have the assignment to tell them the good news. But remember this. Remember what Carl Henry, another author, said. He said this. This is so, so powerful. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Trust God for the wisdom and the courage to love the unbeliever around you. Ask him to use you. Ask him to fill you with his love for those lost people. And then take a step of faith to do some concrete loving act in the name of Jesus for that person. I don't just do something nice. 
so that they'll walk and say, well, that was a nice person. But let them know, hey, I want you to know Jesus loves you. So I'm going to do this for you because he wants you to know how much he loves you. Imagine the impact we could have if we love that way, never compromising the truth, but loving the way he loves. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that your love has been shed abroad in our hearts and that we now can, can be conduits of your love to the world around us. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to do that better, that we'd grow in this area. And Lord, I pray you would lay at least one person on our hearts that needs Jesus. And God, that we would love that person in your name, that we would tell them the gospel, but not just with our words, but we would also back it up with acts of love and kindness that we would serve them in the name of Jesus. And God, in so doing, I pray you would soften hearts of people around us. And as you soften their hearts, that you would draw them to you. God, use us. Use us as people of love that ref to reflect your love and forgiveness to a world that's desperately looking for answers. We give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.